I'm Dr. Noah Emery. I'm Sam Acuff. And this is the Addiction Psychologist Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. John Kelly. John is the Elizabeth R. Spallon Professor of Psychiatry and Addiction Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's also the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And he is the program director of the Addiction Recovery Management Service and associate director of the Center for Addiction Medicine. We're really excited to have John uh, join us for today's episode, and he's going to be talking to us about stigma in addiction and uh, his work in uh, recovery. All right. Welcome to the show, John. We're really excited to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Um, before we jump into all the research, all the important things that, that you're doing, could you tell us a little bit about your training history? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so I did my um, undergraduate training, undergraduate degree at Tufts University in Boston. Um, then I, I worked at McLean Hospital for a couple of years in addiction research uh, before going to graduate school in clinical psychology and um, ended up going to uh, San Diego, uh, University of California, San Diego and San Diego State uh, joint doctoral program in clinical psychology there. And um, after that, I went to Brown for my internship. Um, and I was, a, I, I was planning to stay at Brown um, for a postdoc as well. But then I got offered a job in Palo Alto at the Palo Alto VA wow. and, and Stanford. Uh, so I ended up moving there. I was very interested and had followed the work all through my graduate uh, program of um, Rudy Moose and John Finney and um, Keith Humphreys and was very interested in, in what they were doing there. Um, so I was absolutely delighted to get, um, to get an offer on uh, a job offer there. Um, so I went there, became an assistant professor at Stanford, worked in the VA, um, as it was called then, um, Center for Healthcare Evaluation, hmm. uh, which is essentially a, um, a center that focused on uh, addiction, mostly addiction and mental health research, but they did, they were the hub uh, for the country for the Veterans Affairs um, Substance Use Disorder. And I was a yeah. part of the, uh, I became a part of the Quality Enhancement Research Initiative work there, which was essentially translating and implementing um, evidence-based practices for addiction in the real world in the VA. So wow. uh, we were um, kind of looking for ways to, we were identifying essentially in the, in the VA nationwide identifies gaps in, in care in terms of uh, what what practitioners what programs were currently doing the kind of the gap between what they were currently doing and, and evidence-based practice and then helping testing out the implementation of evidence-based practices in those settings and ultimately seeing whether that implementation of evidence-based practices resulted in better patient outcomes so that was part of that initiative there which was a fairly initiative, new initiative at the time i remember this was back in 2001 um, and um, then, um, for family reasons, we ended up 
my, my wife and I ended up moving back to Boston. So we were there for a couple of years. Uh, and then I went back to Brown and actually ended up doing a postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, wow. interest, interestingly, yeah. Um, so, um, so I was, you know, it was an interesting, because it was kind of, in some ways, it was a backward step, uh, arguably, from going from a system professor <laughs> to, to a postdoc. Um, and I, on the, on the, I wouldn't have taken it except for my advisor, um, Mark Myers, who was a, a great advisor, still is, um, and uh, uh, from my graduate school, he was my grad. He said, you know, he said, take, take. He said, if, without a doubt, take, take the postdoc. Uh, he did the postdoc himself. So he said, you know, don't take an assistant professor job because I, I had, I had a couple of options for assistant professor jobs at Harvard and at Brown. And he said, well, no, he said, do the postdoc. He said, you know, you'll have um, plenty of time to write a grant and get funded. So you'll be independently funded. And that's what I did. And I got an R01 funded at Brown. And then I ended up moving to to Boston. I took this job at Mass General Hospital. They were expanding. This was back in 2005. They were beginning to really expand their emphasis on substance use disorders. And so I ended up moving there um, and then uh, working there, started the program there, clinical program for youth, uh, adolescents, and emerging adults on addiction. Um, but that's kind of my training, I guess. And then, you know, I, I, I gradually uh, got situated there. Uh, I, I founded this um, youth program um, and then a clinical program it was doing this study on youth, actually, it was on youth addiction and recovery. Um, and then um, I, I founded the Recovery Research Institute about uh, 11 years ago now, um, which was yeah. more squarely focused on kind of recovery oriented research. Yeah, but that's my kind of training. Yeah. Training history, yeah. And that's kind of what, you know, you've been come to know, but uh, be known for, uh, at least me, I mean, that that's your, your sort of the name when it comes to the recovery space. And, but it also occurs to me that you've jumped back and forth from more or less Boston to California, you know, three or four times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I've been on the run from the police for a long time. Um, uh, incidentally, please don't tell them that you send me if yep. anybody asks. All right. um, but, It'll um, be our secret. <laughs> Yeah, but the um, no, yeah, it, it has been, yeah, it has been kind of back and forth because um, yeah, I went from you know San Diego, I was in Boston, went to San Diego and back, and then back over to Palo Alto, then back again. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's just the way it's worked out. You know, it could have been anywhere, but um, uh, I'm just so grateful for you know the mentors, the people, the examples. You know, we all rely on that, don't we? As we're uh, yeah. growing up in the, in the field, we look to our heroes, the people that that stand out, and there were there were. Loads, loads of people like that who I really admired and respected and wanted to emulate, um, and and that's what I, uh, you know, that's what I tried to do. I look for my, you know, inspirations and and uh, the people who were there were many of them, um, and, and some of some of whom have passed on, but um, uh, you know, these are our inspiration, aren't they? When we're when we're, we're moving along in the field and. Um, and so I wanted to, to work with them if I could. And, and of course, you can't work with everybody, but you, um, you want to work with certain people. And, um, 
or otherwise, you know, see them at conferences and stuff like that. And uh, so I've just been so grateful that I've been able to work in the places that I've been able to, you know, train and work in. It's been just a, uh, a wonderful adventure and journey so far. Yeah, it, so it sounds like a really cool uh, set of experiences. Yeah. And, um, been, yeah. and, and, and sprinkled in there low key was how you landed an R01 as a postdoc, um, which I think, uh, should be celebrated, um, which is, I think is well, quite an accomplishment yeah. and a testament, I think, to the quality of your work. And, and I think, um, you know, as you, as you kind of reference, you know, the people that inspire you and, and the people like that. And um, I can surely say that you've been um, instrumental in, in, in my growth of, as a, as a uh, researcher and as a clinician in the space, your work has been inspiring and you've just been so gracious with your time over the years. Um, so, so thank you for, for paying it forward. Uh, well, that's very kind of you to say so. I appreciate it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a team, it's a team game and, um, I've gotten lots of assists. Uh, I might've scored a goal here and there, but I get plenty of assists, uh, from, from the rest of the team for sure. Yeah. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, it is. I think team science is, is really the, is the, is the key. And, and oftentimes, uh, I think we, we miss a little bit on that. And so I'm glad that you threw the shout out for the, for the rest of the people. Oh yeah, for sure. And so, so your research covers a lot of area and a lot of ground now, especially with all the travel that you've done and the different places you've worked with or the different places you've been and people you've worked with. And so today we were thinking we would focus a little bit on some of your work in the addiction stigma space, as well as some of your um, recovery science work. And so, um, you know, as a kind of an underlying theme of many episodes we've had here, uh, we've referenced some of your work on addiction stigma and um, you've kind of writ, wrote the like seminal papers on the idea of stop talking dirty in our field. And so we were hoping maybe you could, you know, explain that concept to our listeners a little bit and then talk a little bit about some of the research that kind of gave rise to that um, so that we can kind of understand where stuff comes from. Well, it's interesting, you know, um, uh, by the way, thank you for your kind words. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, when you, <clears throat> you know, such is life, isn't it? You know, you, don't, you just don't know. Uh, you kind of make some, you know, your best guess of where you want to go, what you want to do. And, of course, you can't see around the next bend until you get to the next bend. And so uh, this is the story of life, I guess, and, and certainly my career. And you kind of stumble forwards, hopefully, as, as you go along. And, and this was a case of stumbling onto this issue, which kind of, began to irk me um, way back in, you know, I was oblivious to this myself until I suppose around about 2002, 2003, I began to notice this term abuse. And I thought, you know, that's a, you know, why do we use that term? And the other thing that, you know, it's not just this, the, 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 the kind of the negative kind of um, uh, connotation around that, um, which I'll get to in a second, but it was also the thing about lack of precision in the field in terms of our language and terminology in a clinical from a clinical science perspective the term abuse was used um, to describe the field more generally like the substance abuse field we have the center for substance abuse treatment we have the you know um, the substance abuse mental health service, substance abuse mental health service right. administration etc so it's used generally as a generic term and it's also used as a di it was back then it was used as a diagnostic uh, term so mm. it was mixed into papers um, in both senses and so you can see how people could get 
very confused about are they talking about the diagnostic term abuse or are they talking about the gener generic term of abuse, you know, describing the field overall? Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's going to create problems for generalizing from scientific findings related to, for example, abuse and dependence. And I think we have a bit of the same problem right now with this very broad category of substance use disorder uh, yeah. with 11 symptoms and you have two or more, you're in the category. And of course, we don't specify, even though there are specifiers within that category for mild, moderate, severe, we tend not to use those specifiers very much when we're talking, um, you know, amongst ourselves in the field or even communicating. We tend to talk about the, the, the disorder as a single entity. Right. Uh, um, and of course, this can create problems when we're talking about, you know, degrees of impairment, drug involvement, and, and likelihood of different kinds of outcomes. So there was this issue of clinical precision that, that, that began to irk me, but then also the term abuse, uh, as it could give rise to the idea of being a, a, an abuser. What does that mean? Um, uh, does it, you know, like it, it had a, you know, like the connotation of being a child abuser. Right. Um, so as I began to look at that, I, I remember I was in Palo Alto working in the VA at the time, and I thought, you know, this is not a good term. We need to get rid of it. We need to stop using it. Couldn't have any, you know, idea how I would, you know, pr prove that. But I just had the idea that this was not, you know, because of the connotation with child abuser and all the rest of it. Um, and um, we actually, I remember bringing this up in that in that quality uh, enhancement research initiative group, which was a national entity, and um, Mark Willenbring, who was the clinical lead on that group at the time. Um, agreed with me. I brought it up in the in the meeting, and um, one 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 time we were meeting in our national advisory group, national group there, um, and then we voted on it. We changed the name of the, of the group right there. There wow. was enough. There was enough consensus um, among the researchers and clinical researchers in that in that group, and it had some heavy hitters in there, including you know Mark Willenbring, who later became the head of NIAAA's uh, treatment and recovery branch, with John Finney. Rudy Moose, Keith Humphrey, uh, um, uh, Dan Kivlahan. I mean, there was some uh, George Woody from the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, there was, um, but they all agreed that we should get rid of this term abuse, and we changed the name from the uh, the, the the quality enhancement the quality enhancement substance abuse module to query SUD SUD query. Hmm. So we changed it to SUD. Now. That was kind of the beginning of something for me because I wrote a paper thereafter, kind of looking at um, back in 2004, looking at this issue of, of of language and stigma and how that, of course, frames our language frames it both reflects and affects our approaches to to addiction and to yeah. substance use. Um, and so uh, I began to look at uh, the frame, you know, the conceptual frame, and how our a schema around certain constructs and issues are framed, of course, by our language. So then I began to look at ways of testing that out um, and ended up uh, a couple of years later doing a, a, a randomized study to look at, you know, whether actually exposure to that term substance abuser, um, uh, you know, um, produce different attitudes towards a person um, suffering from a substance-related condition than, than some calling someone, you know, describing someone as having a substance use disorder. <laughs> and, uh, 
And uh, 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 anyway, so I ended up doing that. I did another study after that and a couple of others. Um, but it was, um, you know, testing that out and uh, realizing that, you know what, it even surprised me, you know, just just how it makes a difference. It's more than just, um, uh, you know, political uh, correctness uh, that it actually induces these implicit biases, even among doctoral level clinicians, because that was the first study I did, I remember. Um, looking, it was testing it. Yeah, we had a, a doc, these are all doctoral level clinical psychiatrists and addiction psychiatrists and and, um, and really uh, you know, advanced uh, practitioners who were susceptible hmm. to this bias when they were exposed yeah. to these different terms. So that was pretty striking to me. Yeah, and the one, I think the most, the, the really striking part of that study specifically is like how it flips to a punitive approach right so in that study you kind of ask them like what should we do with them right you give them you give them two vignettes yeah. and the only difference between it is substance abuse versus substance use disorder to describe the person's condition mm-hmm. and they ask what we should do with them and then you know it's like who should we send them to treatment should we call, you know like in i think like they violate the probation or something like this you know should we call the probation officer send them to jail right, right. and then right. just the term abuse had you know similar doctoral level training uh, participants were more punitive towards that person and also viewed their um, actions as more under their own control. Right. Hmm. And so I, th- I think that's a re- really, it was really kind of one of those things where like, it just kind of hit you right in the forehead. Right. When, when I, when I read that, I was like, Oh wow. That's like so obvious and yet surprising. Right. Like um, that one. And then like, there's a bunch of other terms that kind of layer on that too. Right. Like the idea of um, when we talk about toxicology where we use the term, they were dirty versus clean, mm-hmm. right? And like how that connotation also yeah. generates, you know, stigma yeah. and punitive right. approaches and, and ways in viewing people. Yeah. And I think that that, that that study was just so striking to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, and in, it, it was to me too, in, 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 in kind of, you know, getting those results. Um, but you're right, you know, and, and as I, again, this was a bit of a mistake. I, I wasn't really planning to do any of this work you know, I just kind of <laughs> fell into it and then, you know, stumbled along, you know, kind of making a study and then another study and then getting more, I was not an expert in stigma at all. I mean, I, I never, you know, never really touched it, um, never talked about, you know, uh, other than, of course, like we all do with addiction, you know, we're right. all, you know, we're all talking about it. Like you said, we talk about it all the time. It's in, it's in the air of um, anything we do in, in addiction because it is so stigmatized. But then again, to began to get more involved, rolling up my sleeves, underst- trying to understand it more myself. And then I thought, you know, there's this kind of these two dimensions, which you're alluding to, Noah, of, you know, cause and controllability. I think these two major factors of cause and controllability in relation to stigma. Because if we say, to, you know, hmm. regarding to any disorder that, or problem in society that, which is stigmatized, if we can say, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's not their fault and they can't help it, we tend to have more compassion and stigma yeah. tends to go down. If we tend to say, wait a minute, well, they did cause it, and by the way, they can control it, then they're engaging in selfish, right. you know. And they're choosing not to. Yeah. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's those two aspects. And I thought the abuser term, you call someone a, a drug abuser or an alcohol abuser, you, you know, you're implying that really they're just choosing to do it, that maybe that's what's being conveyed implicitly, that they are engaging in willful misconduct. And so if you use that term, you're more likely to get a kind of a connotation or induce a 
or trigger a schema that is associated with willful misconduct because they're choosing to engage in it as opposed to using a more medical term like disorder. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, when you pitch it against that, it, it turns out, yeah, it, it does. It actually does induce this more punitive, negative punitive schema. And of course, you know, if we, therefore, you know, if you want to, if you want to kind of uh, make some changes in this field, then we need to think about what we're, how we're actually talking about it, and people who suffer from these disorders. And uh, I'm happy to say that 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 that, that um, you know the world has changed. We are we are we have changed our language. DSM-5 adopted as substance use disorder, got rid of the abuse term, uh, in part because of that research. I was told that made the final the final okay. decision for them. Um, in terms of dropping that term wow. completely, uh, Wilson Compton told me. Um, so I was very happy that it had that kind of impact. Wow. Little did I know at the time. Yeah, I guess you never know what what kind of impact your research is having. Um, the other thing is like the word yeah. abuse. It, it it ties like this almost this violence to it, um, and it makes you know. I think a lot of people um, have that connotation, that belief about drug use that you know <clears throat> a, a drug user is is violent or liable to be really violent um, because of drug use. And um, so on top of just it being stigmatizing and then health providers, you know, being mm -hmm. less likely to, you know, give the treatment necessary. Then sometimes I think it yeah. makes people think things differently about the individual them, themselves as well. Yeah. 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 Right on. You know, it's interesting, you know, you brought up earlier, you know, this term, you know, I, I use that as a title of one, of one of the papers that we did called stop talking dirty. Um, because it's, you know, it's, you just reminded me, Sam, you know, of um, how even in the medical settings uh, where I work, um, you hear clinicians, these are trained clinicians, uh, talking about dirty urine screens, you know, the, the urine mm. coming back dirty. And it's like, we don't use that kind of language in any other area of psychology or medicine. Um, somehow it's infiltrated right. our medical lexicon in top you know, clinical settings, arguably, in the world, we should not be using that kind of language. I mean, that you don't need. I don't think we need a, a, an empirical study, a randomized study, to agree that we should not use "dirty" in the context uh, a dirty urine or a clean urine in the context of of, of any uh, medical or psychiatric psychological illness. So um, that that was more clear cut that we need to drop that kind of language from our. Um, public health clinical lexicon, as well as, you know, uh, uh, finding out what language tends to induce these explicit and implicit biases towards people, if we're serious about changing, you know, about trying to, trying to, trying to shift away from the criminal justice approaches towards more clinical and public health approaches. Right, right. And, and the winds are shifting in that direction, for sure. And most other medical conditions, it's going to be a positive test or a negative test, um, which, has its own connotations, I guess, but you know, that's at least the standard in 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 medicine. So, well, where has all of this sort of led you? So, if if not abuse, like disorder, is an option, but you know, what 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 do you think needs to change? Well, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> so that uh, you know th those tests, I did a couple of studies like that where we looked at the word disorder as opposed to abuse. You know, and and so. The mental health field for a long time before addiction is you've been using person first language. You know, it's respectful. It, it implies that there is a person who has a disorder as opposed to being the disorder. Um, and so I think that's important. And we've adopted that in, in I think now broadly in our field, in the addiction field, uh, more specifically. 
But here's an interesting, we just did this study, we just published it in addiction, just came out a couple of months ago. Interestingly, now because I was thinking, you know, we, we talk about, um, uh, you know, disorder is certainly one option, right? We talk about addiction also as a brain disease, mm -hmm. as a disease, as a brain disease, as right. an illness, as a disorder, as a chronically relapsing brain disease. So um, we actually just did a big national study where we randomized those terms to see, again, how does that affect people's attitudes towards yeah. someone who has um, a drug-related impairment? And interestingly, there was a very interesting nuance that came out of this, which again, you know, hit me, was that the 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 way that we the kind of language that we use, you know, because stigma is multidimensional. So what we found actually, you know, you can reduce certain dimensions of stigma, but increase others with the same term. Mm. Wow. So what we, what we, when we randomized, we had a very large sample, 3,600 people. It was, it was nationally representative of the general U.S. population. When we randomized these six terms across these individuals, roughly 300 in each group, we had it split by gender as well. Um, so we had men and women um, um, in, 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 represented in the vignette. Um, but what was interesting was that uh, the chronically relapsing brain disease. So the more heavy, heavily loaded medical terminology, like chronically relapsing brain disease, was the best at reducing blame. Hmm. So personal blame towards the individual depicted. But it was the worst in terms of um, eliciting negative uh, prospects for that person could recover. Wow. And it also increased the most, it was associated with the most uh, perceived danger and social exclusion. Wow, yeah. Right. Mm. In contrast, when you when you drop the medical terminology, it was associated with the most blame. So when you describe, for example, someone as having a opioid problem, that in, in, induced the most blame, but the, the most likelihood that someone could recover, hmm. the least likely to be socially excluded and the least dangerous. So that suggests to me in terms of in answering your question, Sam, you know, is that the kind of language that we use um, depends on what we want to communicate. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of nuanced in the sense that we may want to use certain terminology to maybe to get people to, to get to get into treatment. Right. Um, other terminology we might want to use less medical terminology when we're talking about their acceptance in society. Well, and it highlights that, you know, this like sort of compulsion and volition are on this spectrum, you know, opposite ends of a spectrum that, touch different parts of different models, um, in addiction, um, and also induce different types of stigma depending on, on which way you go. Um, it is almost not a good answer. Yeah, it depends. But I think, I think your point here is, is actually a really important one, John, right. That, that we can have different language for different goals and that we could capitalize perhaps by using a couple of different terms at key state, key decision points to leverage, you know, how human language influences individuals and what it elicits and, and, and what it tamps down. And we were having a similar conversation about this um, with Matt Field when he was on about the boomeranging effect of the brain disease model that like, you know, these are people with broken brains, right? And like, they're different than me, they're other, right? right. right? And they're dangerous and they're unfixable or I'm unfixable, right? And so the idea that maybe we could use 
you know, a term when we're talking about trying to engage a person who's interested in changing um, versus the type of term we might use when a person's engaged in recovery already, for instance, like, you know, like at a 12 step meeting, you know, they say like, hi, I'm, you know, so-and-so I'm an addict, right? Like that, that has a purpose there, but those people tend to use that label out in lay environments with family members and other types of things, which elicit specific responses from them that perhaps unintended based on the, the results you're having here. And so having an alternative term there to describe ourselves and our condition, um, should I be a person with that condition that could elicit, you know, more social inclusion and more compassionate responses, you know, and also use it perhaps in a public health domain to, you know, advocate for social programs, um, so forth and so on might be prudent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it depends again on the, on the context as well, right, is uh, who we're talking to and, and what the goal, as you say, what the goal of the communication is, because that's critical. Uh, it, it seems that it may be influential, the type of term that we use and how we describe it and people suffering from it um, uh, can influence people's judgments and attitudes towards that person and they towards themselves. The other thing about language, of course, is that language evolves. It evolves mm, and changes. Totally. So we don't talk about lunatic asylums anymore. We don't talk about dipsomania. Uh, we did used to. Um, those were common common terms. So language evolves. It changes over time. And I, I think, you know, what's important when we're talking about the most stigmatized condition in most societies around the world, which is drug addiction, followed by alcohol addiction, illicit drug addiction, followed by alcohol addiction. Um, it's very important that we think about ways that things that we can influence, you know, and, and language is one thing that we can influence how we speak. Um, and, uh, you know, language becomes automatic. It becomes automatic. We don't have to think about our language too much. We actually have to, when we're trying to insert a new term, we actually have to stop ourselves from saying the old term because it's so automated and habitual that we have to stop ourselves and proactively intervene with, with a new term. But then that quickly becomes, doesn't it? Quickly becomes the new term that we've adopted, that we, that we can adopt. And it becomes uh, an important part of our language. I think it's particularly important with, with stigmatized conditions like substance use disorders are. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I think language is powerful and, it, and it's striking that. I think this conversation has evolved, you know, in part since you've started talking about it, John, but um, also, you know, uh, in part since the beginning of the opioid epidemic. Um, and, you know, there, there have been a lot of reasons why maybe we've started talking about stigma around addiction more often. Um, but one thing that you said that made me think um, part of that reason could be because of our shift in the language that we're using around it that occurred, you know, on a, on a, on a large scale in 2013 with the DSM-5 um, and, and also, you know, with with the with ICD, I think they probably made a, a shift, similar shift around that time, um, and so I'm wondering, it, you know, uh, if if that change in language actually may have had some kind of an effect on on the way that we're talking about it now. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I I hope so. Um, yeah. And you know, we've pushed hard. Uh, people like Rich Sage, Sarah Wakeman, myself, we've written about this. We've we've written letters to editors of newspapers. We've you know, I went to the, um, Rich Sates and myself went to um, the, the, the International Society of Addiction Journal Editors meeting in Budapest a few years back, and we presented these data um, that we had, I had from my studies, and, and uh, Rich and I presented 
And we got consensus there to remove this terminology from all addiction science worldwide. That was adopted by the International Society of Addiction Journal editors. Uh, uh, so that was an important step, right? Because totally. they said, well, you know, then if you don't see it, you know, if you don't see it in published science, you're not going to, you know, you'd be less likely to repeat it um, and, and talk about it because, and so that was a very important step. And I was very glad that we were able to get that outcome there. And again, we've kept our foot on the gas because, you know, I think it's something that we can influence and have change over. Stigma is very difficult to change. Right. It's very difficult to have an impact on. Um, and we, we need to look at the ways that we can influence it. And, you know, our language, you know, like I said, it both reflects and affects um, our approaches and our conceptual understanding of, of these phenomena. So it's very important. I've become much more, you know, you asked me 25 years ago, I said, no, you know, it's just political uh, correctness. I, I might have blown it off like that, but, but now I'm much more serious about it just because this is so stigmatized. These conditions are so stigmatized. And we have to, we got our work cut out. We got our work cut out to, to, to continually keep our foot on the gas to try and help people to understand uh, really the true nature. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Right, and, and am I correct in that um, you were uh, part of a movement now to even try and change some of the language that we're using for NIH institutes? Absolutely like right. Yeah, NIAAA yeah. and NIDA. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we, you know, uh, I wrote a policy brief with um, Valerie Earnshaw from the University of Delaware, and um, we. We were, again, it was really a policy brief. It was sponsored by the Society of Behavioral Medicine, which is to change the names of the National Institutes of Health pertaining to addiction, which include and, and also the federal administrations, i.e. SAMHSA and CSAT, which have abuse in their names. And they're, they're really outdated names. We need to change them. Um, the, you know, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, for example, we don't even use the term alcoholism anymore. Um, that hasn't been used for a long time. Um, it's still in the name, National Institute of Drug Abuse. Again, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration. So, yes, we wrote a, a, a policy brief. Then we started the petition with Voice Faces and Voices of Recovery um, uh, in an attempt to, again, put pressure um, on, on uh, the legislature, the federal government, because we do need a vote in Congress to change these names. It has to be an official stance by with congressional approval to change these names. Uh, I think it's coming. I think the sooner the better. Um, it's long overdue, if you ask me, and hopefully we'll be able Absolutely. to do that soon. Yeah, with the new administration. Do you think that there are anything uh, that listeners can do to sort of participate in that? Uh, they can sign our petition on the Action, <laughs> on the Action Network, um, and um, uh, hopefully, maybe we can provide that link. We yeah, um, we, we can we can add the link totally. Yeah, that would be great. And you know, again, it's just signing on to it because the more people that sign on, the more people. You know, I'm I, I was at RSA, uh, I was at RSA a few years back, and I was on a panel at the end with George Coop, um, Bob Hubner, who was the acting director of uh, NIAAA's Division on Treatment and Recovery back then, um, uh, and a couple of other folks. And someone came up and asked. Uh, we, we were on a panel uh, talking about this issue, and someone came up from the audience and asked, you know, when are we going to change the names of the NIAAA? And NIDA, of course, it was a bit of a planted question because they knew I was on the panel. And, and I, was, I was arguing for a change. And George Coop said, well, it really has to come from the people. You know, the impetus has to come from the, from the people. 
Um, and um, so anyway, uh, hmm. that, so, you know, so in other words, if we push hard enough as a society, they'll change the name. We are, we are the society. We, you know, we, right. choose, we can choose what these things uh, are called. And um, I don't think it does us any favors to call these institutes the National Institute of Drug Abuse and the National no, Institute of Drug Abuse. Not at all. In not fact, it's the opposite. It, you know, what's ironic, what's ironic is these institutes are designed to actually reduce stigma and increase the public health and clinical efforts uh, pertaining to these disorders. And, you know, <laughs> right embedded in their names, ironically, is still these very stigmatizing terms. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, they probably they might even fund the research by which has yes. drawn these conclusions. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. but these names, they reflect different approaches to recovery, which is also something we want to talk about with you. Um, yeah. You know, where, where one of them has been sort of tied up with, um, I mean, loosely with the war on drugs, but also just more strict enforcement sort of models. And, and some of these other languages are, are a little bit softer and, and are, you know, uh, try to have empathy towards the individual. So maybe I wonder if we can shift into this discussion about recovery. We would love to hear about some of your work in that space as well. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, um, you know, I, I got into, again, not quite by design, but um, I was inspired by people like Bell White, uh, William White, who's one of my heroes, um, who wrote um, Slaying the Dragon, you know, the history of, 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 of addiction treatment in America published that first volume in 1998. And uh, I, I loved reading that. I just was so inspired uh, to read that because he had this huge, you know, uh, you know overview of, of how, you know, in the United States, how, how the United States had approached this problem um, over since colonial, pre, you know, in, in colonial times and beyond into the you know, origin of the nation. And, um, and people like Bell was providing the language the language, the concepts, the, the framework, the architecture for this idea of recovery science. And uh, he was a big inspiration to me, along with others, Tom McClellan, Keith Humphreys, um, you know, Rudy Moose. There were, there were many people in the field um, uh, in this realm that were inspirational. Many others, of course, Alan Marlat was one, um, Bill Miller, many others, Nancy Petrie, uh, of course, classic um, yeah. individuals who had really... Um, shaped a lot of the clinical uh, the clinical realm and, and, and shifted our paradigms um, since the declaration of the war on drugs in 1970. Um, but I think, you know, when we zoom out and look at how, how much we've learned in the last 50 years since the declaration of the war on drugs under Nixon, we've learned a lot. We've come a long way. Don't forget, you know, at the same time, uh, this, you know, drug abuse was declared public enemy number one. Mm. And AAA was founded. Four years later, NIDA was founded. That's, it was, um, I think they're connected. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it really did appropriate federally mandated dollars to construct these research enterprises, which produce and still produces 90% of the world's knowledge on addiction science. It comes out of the NIH, um, right. paid for by American taxpayers. And so that's what we've learned. And we've learned, and really the whole world has learned as a result, um, about you know the causes of addiction. You know the genetic of influences on addiction. That roughly half the effect of, 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 of the risk of addiction is conferred by genetics. Neurobiology, neuroscience, or you know the controllability aspects. Um, you know what, what's responsible for the impaired control. 
around addiction? Why is it that people will still engage despite harmful consequences? Um, we're understanding much more about that, about the epidemiology, phenomenology, typologies, all these things we've learned the last 50 years, which has really brought us um, to this point of understanding addiction as an illness which is susceptible to relapse and which can take a long time to stabilize even when people achieve remission. And this is the thing that, you know, people like Bill White had been talking about, you know, what if we really believed addiction was a chronic illness? What if we really treated it as such? What about all the millions and millions of people in recovery? What could we learn from those individuals? Hmm. They were an untapped resource in understanding how people got and stayed in remission from a very serious, deadly illness such as substance use disorder. And Bill was really, you know, one of the people that really was speaking out about that, uh, which kind of got my interest in, in um, and then, uh, you know, I later started to do research in that area, looking at how people achieve and sustain remission. Um, and um, yeah, so this whole notion of, 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 of recovery science really is looking at, uh, you know, how do people do that? How do people achieve uh, remission and stable remission and, and recovery? Um, you know, I, I I think we all think that you know treatment uh, is important and it can be certainly life-saving and it is vitally important for many people, but not everybody. Um, but it can be the starting point for many people in terms of moving them into into the right track uh, of change. But of course, treatment tends to be our validated treatments are very short, right? We're talking about 12, 12 weeks of some kind of manualized psychosocial treatment usually. Uh, 12 weeks, that's about it. Uh, that's about the longest. Then you've got, you know, uh, fabulous medications that can detoxify, stabilize, metabolically stabilize somebody, provide medications for, uh, for long-term use uh, in the case of opioid use disorder uh, that can help people prevent, uh, uh, you know, destabilization and relapse. Um, but what about all the rest of it, right? You know, what about all the other thing? How do people actually uh, stabilize, remit and stabilize over time? And that's what really became my interest. Yeah, I think that's a, such an important aspect, right? Is that like a lot of the knowledge has kind of been top down achieved, right? By experts and, and, and empirical stuff. But there's all this important information that's coming kind of bottom up. Uh, from individuals in recovery, uh, and, and there's a bunch of people who achieve recovery um, or at least problem resolution without engaging with treatment in any way, right? So what, the, what people kind of refer to as natural recovery or even um, in, in young adults' case, kind of maturing out uh, related things. And I know you've conducted a study, the National Recovery Study, um, where you looked at, you know, a bunch of really interesting, it's one of the only nationally representative samples of um, individuals in recovery ever conducted. And it has some really important papers that have come out of it, like um, the number of average number of attempts, serious attempts, um, stuff related around um, jobs and employment and things like that. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about some of the, some of the work um, in that space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're right on, you know, it's like, yeah, it is. It's top down and bottom up. And it's kind of, you know, a science is inductive and deductive, isn't it? You know, we have exploratory research, which then can generate hypotheses, which can then can be confirmed deductively. And, you know, we've, you know, one of the purposes of the National Recovery Study was 
Um, I was actually had the good fortune of working on the Surgeon General's report, and 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 um, which was the first one published in 2015 on alcohol, drugs, and health. And I was writing with Keith Humphreys um, the chapter on recovery. And as we were going through it, writing it, um, one question that came up was we were talking about estimates estimates of the number of Americans who are in recovery. And there were some regional studies, a couple of regional studies, but of course. We didn't know whether those individuals themselves, uh, number one, we didn't have a national prevalence estimate. Number two, we were calling them as being in recovery, but we didn't know exactly whether they themselves would identify as being in recovery, even right. though their problem had been resolved. So that was an interesting data point that I wanted to gather, uh, as well as get a kind of a national estimate. So uh, we, we ended up um, doing this national uh, recovery study which I believe was the first, as you say, was the first national, you know, nationally representative study to look at this particular question. And we looked at, we were able to look at a number of different questions um, and, and assess them in that study. Um, and we found out, like you say, I, I think some very interesting things. Again, it's, it's you know, it's a cross-sectional, large epidemiological study, but I think we've got some, again, so we generated a lot of hypotheses about what happens to people in recovery and perhaps documented uh, and have provided some, some useful, I think, data points to be followed up on, um, some of which were eye-opening, some of which were confirmatory um, and validating, I think, for many people. Um, one was just estimating the national recovery prevalence as being about 10%, it was actually 9.1%, but roughly 1 in 10 U.S. adults have resolved a significant drug or alcohol problem. Um, I think that was the first national estimate of in mm. individuals. So in other words, 22.35 million Americans are in recovery based on the U.S. census uh, estimate at, at that time. Still about that. So about 25 million people um, have resolved. That's tens of millions of people who are walking around um, who have resolved a significant drug or alcohol problem. Uh, what, was, what was also interesting was, um, you know, the different pathways that followed. You brought this up, Noah, um, and whether they identified as being in recovery. And we looked at their trajectories in terms of quality of life and functioning. We looked at their how many times serious recovery attempts it took for them to resolve uh, their, their, um, their substance for, uh, alcohol drug problem, um, among other things, as, as you pointed out. Um, but you know, one of the things that we found was about half of those individuals uh, had recovered uh, unassisted. So they didn't use any kind of external uh, resource at all. Um, and when we looked at the, the correlates of kind of recovering without assistance versus recovering with assistance, um, as you would imagine, or perhaps predict, uh, people who were able to recover without assistance tended to be less severe, uh, had, le had, had markers of lower severity and higher, more resources. People who needed more help, external assistance, tended to be higher, have markers of higher addiction severity, higher density of psychopathology, and fewer recovery resources, mm. what we now sometimes refer to as recovery capital, you know, the kind of the, the amalgamation of all those uh, uh, recovery resources that people could draw upon to help them in their recovery attempt. Um, and um, 
so that that was interesting looking at um, you know estimating roughly about half um, uh, had resolved the problem without without uh, utilizing any kind of external uh, service um, the other thing was uh, the the, uh, the adoption of a recovery identity mm. this is something that again we were querying when we were writing that surgeon general's uh, report chapter on recovery um, to look at you know what proportion of people would actually self-identify as being in recovery interestingly i thought this would be higher but about half about half of this sample identified as being in recovery about half did not um, when we looked at the again the predictors or correlates of identifying as someone in recovery the, the again the, the things that tended to predict the adoption of that identity tended to be higher severity indicators. Mm, yeah. So if you had a more severe clinical history, had used more services, had a dense, higher density of psychopathology, you were more likely to adopt that identity. I think some of that, I surmise that maybe some of that might be uh, self-preservative, self-protective in the sense that if you've been badly burned, you want to remember that if you've been very severely affected by an addiction problem, you don't want to forget it uh, because the consequences of forgetting it are so severe, maybe even could be the end of your life, that you need to integrate that as part of your identity. And it may be that the adoption and integration um, of that identity may, 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 may serve as that self-preservative function mm. uh, to keep it front and center and if you talk to recovering people, they will often tell you that, uh, that they need to remember it. They need to keep those memories green and keep that, uh, that identity as part of, the, part of themselves because it's impacted their lives so much in the past and it could do so in the future that's important to adopt and integrate it. For people with less severe histories, it may not be so important uh, to adopt that and integrate that as part of one's identity. Again, I'm making that up, uh, but I think it's a reasonable, <laughs> a reasonable uh uh, uh, hypothesis, um, and um, yeah, so no, so that was some of the some of the broad stroke findings, as I recall. Um, you you asked about uh, here's another thing. Yeah, was the recovery attempt? So how many mm -hmm. serious recovery attempts uh, did it take? I do want to talk about the quality of life stuff because I think that's important, and that was something that really struck me, and I'd like to get to that. I don't want to forget it. So I'm putting it out there now so we don't forget. But uh, the, um, you know, this had been done a lot in tobacco cessation, right? When people are quitting cigarettes, they often ask, you know, how many, you know, how many times did you try to quit before you eventually quit? This had not been asked um, in the alcohol and drug um, field, wow. uh, as far as I could find anywhere. Um, so anyway, so we asked them that, how many serious recovery attempts did it take before you resolved your problem? And we found that um, it was the mean, the mean, the average, the arithmetic mean was five, just over five, about five and a half times. But the median, because it was so skewed, the median, which was the more apt measure of central tendency, you know, your skewed distributions, um, you should use the median um, if you have a very skewed distribution, which we often do in our field. If you ever look at outcomes or pretty much anything, um, they're always, you know, negatively or positively skewed. In this case, it was very positively skewed. So you had a, a small number of people that had a very high number of 
recovery attempts before they resolved their problem. But the majority of people actually had a very low number of recover serious recovery attempts before they resolved their problem. In fact, the median was just two times, hmm. just twice. And interestingly, even when, when we did some sensitivity analysis, because obviously we had people anywhere from one week in recovery to 40 years plus in recovery, right? But we also had people in that first five years of recovery. You'd ask, well, they're more susceptible, they're more, they're less stable. What about folks in that early, in, you know, if you take out that, fir that first five years, people who have five or more years of recovery who are more stably, arguably more stably remitted, they have a much more stable uh, recovery. How long, how many times did it take them to, to, to resolve the problem? The exact same, it was two. Uh, so whether you looked at if, if it was, you know, in the first five years or after five years of stable recovery, um, it was still the median was only two times. Again, it was variable. The predictors of taking more times, again, were the severity markers. So people who needed more recovery attempts tended to have more severe clinical histories, more use of external services. Um, so as you and a higher density of comorbidities, uh, psychiatric yeah. comorbidities. So they just had higher density problems and, um, and it took them a, a bit longer, but still it was only three or four as opposed to two uh, serious recovery terms. So right. I think that's pretty hopeful, right? When we think about, we, we tend to talk about this as a, as a chronically relapsing disease or chronically relapsing disorder. It seems very like nobody ever gets better, right? It's like, yeah. it's futile, you know, it's like, why even try? But the truth of it is, it seems to be, and again, they did a similar uh, a study in Canada, which found very similar results uh, for people resolving a significant drug or alcohol problem, that it took relatively few serious recovery attempts. Yeah. That's good news to tell families, to tell people exactly. who are seeking treatment that, look, this is not an endless endeavor, but rather if you keep at it, you keep trying, you know, you're likely to get there sooner, maybe sooner than you think. Yes, it can take some people uh, a few more serious recovery attempts, but um, uh, you know uh, the, uh, the the median is just is is two to three times, and it can be you know four or five times if you if you have a very severe clinical history. But I think that's pretty hopeful uh, to yeah. be able to communicate to folks and to families who. I completely agree. I've actually used that clinically. Um, with families where they're like, Oh, this is just how it's going to be now. Like where I work, I work a lot with teens and, you know, they're kind of understandably exasperated at times by the time they reach, um, you know, the, the program I was in, um, you know, and it's like, but actually, you know, it's, you know, the national average is kind of, you know, just two attempts. Right. And like, Oh, okay. That totally kind of flips it for them. And then suddenly we get a t different level of investment. We get different, um, you know, expectancy effects, uh, installation of hope effects for, for uh, families and, and individuals that are trying to, you know, make a change. And so I think, I think that studies is like super important and not just from an epidemic. That's one of those ones where like epidemiology meets intervention in like a very meaningful way mm -hmm. where a lot of the times those linkages and translation aren't very clear, but this is one of those cases where I think it is the, is very true um, and very clear connections uh, that are clinically relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, you can give them the confidence interval around that, you know, it's two sure. to four, you know, two yeah. to four. <laughs> sure, you know? sure. Uh, so, you know, so they don't lose hope if it takes them more than two, but right. at the same yeah, time, yeah, that's a great point, right? Two to four, you know, right? Yeah. Like, at, at the totally same reasonable. time, yeah. 
And at the same time, you, you can instill hope and say, you know, this is achievable. This is attainable. This is not something that, you know, you know, because we can tend to give out this idea as clinicians that you've got this, again, with good intention. This is what I was getting exactly. at with the, with the chronically relapsing brain disease nomenclature is that you, you, we're spinning that out in the hope that it will reduce shame and blame and get people more into treatment. It's not your fault. Um, yeah, but at the same time, we want to let people know, well, wait a minute. Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a chronically relapsing brain disease for some, but most people, 75%, actually will achieve full sustained remission. It may take them a little while to get there, but 75% of people with SUD will achieve full remission. That's the good news. And uh, it may not take that many attempts to get there. So um, that's something I think very positive from, from these findings and, and later ones that have come out um, since then. But, um, you know, one of the other things I wanted to get to is just this, uh, the notion of quality of life and, and, and functioning. And we purposely, of course, included a lot of measures along those lines to look at, you know, what happens to people as they get into recovery. And we have a lot of uh, things that you've mentioned before about, you know, increases in recovery capital, you know, employment and achievements and, and, and good things that, that have come out of, of their recovery. Um, and how their functioning changes over time, their functioning indices of well-being, their self-esteem, what happens to that um, as people get and, and, and stay in recovery. And some, some very interesting results when we plotted the curves of these indices of functioning, quality of life, uh, self-esteem, happiness, psychological distress, recovery capital, when we plot those out over over 40 years, you take you take the temporal horizon, for example, mm. of 40 years of recovery um, first. And we also zoomed in on the first five years, the first two years, let's take a look at that as well. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But what was what was noteworthy, I think, was people get better. Uh, that perhaps wasn't wasn't unexpected. Um, that you see this nice monotonic increase in, uh, I say the word monotonic just to impress you. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I'm impressed. So, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. I drop that in everywhere, even if it doesn't make sense. <laughs> nobody knows what it means anyway. So I, I try so to you say it, it and yeah, and they don't yeah. question it. Yeah, I have no clue what it means. I believe it's a curve that double doesn't double back on itself. Oh, well, this but um, but it but it sounds good regardless of what it means. Thank you. Yeah, so. that's yeah, exactly. definitely yeah. I think a really great indicator of intelligence. That's the, right? is, is the ability Using to use the, the word, word monotonically, monotonic. just yeah. all willy nilly in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> like you know, I had yeah. a monotonic. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Monotonic. It sounds like yeah. a drink, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I had too many double monotonics and, and ended up. And, yeah. Um, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, so it's um, no, but the idea is, of course, it just means it, it generally increased um, year over year. You see this nice increase year over year in improvements in quality of life and functioning and well-being, self-esteem, happiness, and and similar drops, analogous drops in psychological distress. Yeah. So that's nice. What was also interesting was the inflection point. There was an inflection point right around this five-year mark. And it's interesting because this mirrored, it mirrored what we know from the clinical realm about how long it takes um, for people to achieve stable remission. And let me explain what I mean by that. We know from lots of prospective studies and retrospective studies 
that it takes about four to five years of continuous remission after someone achieves remission from a substance use disorder, achieves that first year of remission, takes about four to five years of continuous remission before the risk of meeting criteria for a substance use disorder in the following year drops below 15%. Why 15%? Because 15% is the annual risk in the general population mm. of meeting criteria for any substance use disorder, including alcohol use disorder, in the, in the following, in that year. So it'd be no more likely than anybody else in the general population of meeting criteria for a substance use disorder in the following year, if you've already had it, takes about five years of continuous remission. So what we saw in this curve, in these curves of, of improvements in well-being and functioning and drops in psychiatric psychological distress was right around that five-year mark. That's where you see that shift. You see this steeper increase, a steep mm. increase in, in, in changes in these indices in that first five years. And then it, that's where the inflection point in the curve, the change in the curve comes right around that. So it's nice to see that reflected in these data too. Uh, as we saw in these other data, um, that right around, so it, it seems that that five years, that first five years of recovery, there's something about that where people are trying to get back on track. They, they're really improving their quality of life and functioning. And um, up through that first five years, and it's almost like they're climbing up this hill um, of, of, of trying to get their life back on, on track. Uh, after that five-year mark, then it starts to shallow out. People are still improving in, in quality of life and functioning and, 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 and well-being and happiness. Uh, but you see this steeper climb uh, in this first five years. What was slightly disheartening for me was seeing that it took about 15 years before they reached the same quality of life in the general population. Mm. And I think, you know, part of that for me was, was realizing that this, um, you know, really a failure of our approach so far, I think, to really address these other aspects of uh, recovery capital um, and helping people to get back on track. You know, and I often use this metaphor of a burning building. You know, I think what we've done, if we've done anything good in the last 50 years in terms of addiction treatment, we've really focused on life-saving treatment that can really put the fire out of this burning building. You know, we've recognized there's a building on fire, there's an emergency situation, and we put the fire out. We know how to detoxify, stabilize, provide acute care treatment. Where we've done not such a good job is fireproofing the building, making sure that the fire doesn't restart and that we can provide the building materials to people so that they can actually refit their lives, repurpose the building and rebuild the building. And I think also very importantly is providing the building permit so that actually people are permitted to rebuild their lives. One of the things that we, of course, all see and see people struggle with is the criminal record that they have mm -hmm. as a result of, you know, could be simple drug possession, or uh, a crime related to their, to their alcohol or other drug use, uh, which then prevents them from getting a building permit going into recovery. So they can't get a loan, they can't get housing, they can't get a job because of their prior, uh, prior criminal record. So this is something I think we really need to focus on uh, because how disheartening is that when you, when you really wanna, you know, you're trying your hardest to deal with all the post-acute withdrawal phenomena that associated with early recovery and, and deal with all the stress and turmoil uh, around that. And then you're told that, sorry, the door is still closed 
because uh, you, you know we can't give you the building permit because of what you did in the past. It totally. may be a long time in the past. So this is something I think we really need to focus on because that really takes the wind out of people's sails, and they can really lose hope quickly if they feel that they're you know they're already climbing up a hill, and then to add that burden to them, um, it, it can be throw them back into the fire. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that you know. Drugs are very pleasurable, and, and in many situations, um, you know, people's lives are not that pleasurable, uh, and we have to give them. I, I love, I love. That's a classic uh, John Kelly metaphor. I love this idea of building permits to to give people things that compete with with drugs, like exactly. as reinforcers, right? And um, exactly uh, allowing them to do that is, I think, a critical next step. And that fifteen years, you know from what you're saying and, and from what I'm understanding, it's kind of a moving target. I mean, we could maybe in, in, in 20 or 30 years, if we do the right things with policy and whatnot, that could, that could drop uh, pretty substantially. Absolutely. Right. And I think this is what we can do. Uh, you know, it, it, it's really, you know, is that, is that even that five year, you know, that five yeah. year uh, uh, window where we say, well, it takes five years to achieve stable remission. Is there something we can do about that to shorten that? Or is that just inexorable? We can't change it. I think the answer is yes, there is something we can do. And that is to attend not just to the psychopathology, not just the addiction pathology and the other clinical pathology, but addressing these other needs, the social determinants of health, the recovery capital, the building permits, those other aspects which we have tended not to focus on as a field. Interestingly, NIDA now, if you look at their NIDA, NIDA's diagram of what is comprehensive, good quality, comprehensive addiction treatment, interestingly, it includes things like vocational services, wow. legal Love services, yeah. right? So it, 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 in other words, it's addressing and attending to all the other stresses, you know, kind of the, the things that contribute to the allostatic overload uh, of people early on in recovery uh, that prevents them so if we can mitigate that biobehavioral stress by giving people hope, giving them a building permit, giving them materials uh, that they can rebuild their, their, their life, then I think we can shorten that time to quality of life that's commensurate with the general population and also maybe shorten that time frame to stable remission and bring that, bring that down from five years to two or three years. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's excellent bit of research that... Um that provides, I think, clear path, uh, pathways and, and goals that, that's, that are achievable. And I think like the work with stigma, uh, it's about getting people on board and convincing the, the, the addiction community, the general public, um, and, and, you know, uh, representatives in, in our representative government, um, to, to make the changes. Um, and I, I don't know, it kind of feels like a little bit of a call to action for me. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think it. I think that's that's how it has to be done, and we have to focus on these other things, right? Not just symptom reduction, increases in well-being, right? Building permit access, right? People that teach you how to draft them, right? Like all of that stuff are just so essential um, to to pathways to recovery, frankly, right? And I think I think your work here is really setting the stage for some like really important initiatives that are um, going to be the future of recovery science and addiction science more generally. Yeah. And so I just want to thank you so much for sharing your, your work with us today. I think it, 
it's so such groundbreaking work, so important. I've already thought of like three different ways I'm going to include this in a paper I'm working on currently. Uh, and so I think it maybe it's, it's um, a good time to pivot to um, some of our take-home messages, if that's all right with you. Yeah. All right. So what would you, um, this one seems a little bit uh, on the nose, given everything we've talked about already. Uh, but what would you, what do you think the take-home message is for uh, people in recovery or people who are interested in making a change? Um, well, let me start with people making a change. Again, we alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, is that, you know, is that when people get into recovery, their life improves. Their life improves drastically. Um, and uh, it, it may, you know, it may seem very hard uh, to change. Of course, it is very hard to change. But the benefits, the, the, the rewards of that change are life-saving and, you know, life-enriching uh, in, in most cases. We see this, this nice improvement in, in people's quality of life, their meaning and purpose, their self-esteem. All those things are real. They're real. They're documented. And we have those data now to, to suggest that um, if you if you if you move in the direction of adaptive change, of, of resolving your problem, getting into re recovery, that uh, the rewards are there. They are more delayed. Sam mentioned this. You know, obviously, the you know I always talk about the you know the drug rewards are immediate, potent, predictable. The rewards of recovery are delayed, diffuse, and variable. Um, and, and such is life, but you have to, at some point, you know, when the, the punishment of, of, of substance use becomes greater than the reward and it becomes more quickly, it comes more quickly, then people start to pivot towards change. And, um, uh, and, and I think the other thing that we touched on, which I think I would, is let people know um, uh, that it may not be this very large number of uh, attempts that people need to make before they're successful, but rather, you know, two to four, two to four serious attempts before uh, people uh, resolve their problem. And for some people, of course, it's the first attempt. You know, right. for some people, you know, go the other way uh, from that meet that average, that interquartile range. Um, some people are achieving it after just one serious attempt. Right. And so that's going to co-vary with how severe, again, density of pathology, availability of recovery resources, mm. per, per, permits to get the life back on track. Yeah, that's great. What about, um, um, oh, sorry. Did, did you have... no, I, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, for the people in recovery, again, that, you know, that the rewards, what we're finding out here is that reward, re, the rewards of recovery tend to grow monotonically. Um, again, yeah. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Doubling up. <laughs> I just love to use the word monotonic. Even if it makes any sense whatsoever. Um, oh, man. I even used it this morning when I was drinking my coffee. I, just, I said to my fiance, I said, it's coffee. It's monotonic. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, oh, didn't man. make any sense, but she had no clue. What I was talking she about. said, yeah, it is monotonic. Yeah. yeah. Um, what would your take home message be for practitioners? For practitioners, um, I, I, I think, you know, don't lose hope. You know, sometimes uh, practitioners, I always encourage people I supervise clinically and when I give talks to clinicians is, um, 
you know, I think a lot of the nihilism has come actually, ironically, from from practitioners who see the same people mm. coming in mm. uh, to treatment, but uh, or seeing people that don't change. You know, there's the loose hope. So, well, you know, uh, people with addiction, you know, that why help them because they, you know, they they never change, they never get better. They, you know, um, but the, the thing is, you know, when we when we zoom out, if you zoom out to thirty thousand feet. There is that every time you have a conversation with somebody as a clinician, that you're planting the seeds of recovery and to don't lose hope. You know, you may not see change right away, uh, but to t bring up the conversation, assess for it, screen for it, assess for it, uh, have a conversation around it, meet people where they're at, um, but, you know, plant the seed and, you, and, um, and don't give up. The other thing is, is that, uh, is let people know about, you know, and we need to incorporate this much more into our clinical paradigm. And NIDA is already doing, as I mentioned, is, is to link people to recovery capital, to other resources outside the clinical realm. The clinical realm is very important for many people on the severe end of the spectrum. It can really make a big difference to the trajectory. But as I mentioned, this is usually only very short term and we need to connect them to resources that can help them rebuild their life and to instill hope for the future. Um, because, you know, they look back, there's a wreckage of the past, look what I've got to clear up. They look forward, look what I've got to make up. Um, uh, and so there's those two paradigms going on. We can give people hope by linking them to resources. Now there's all these recovery uh, support resources emerging not only 12-step mutual help, different kinds of mutual help organizations, recovery community centers, recovery coaching, mm -hmm. um, recovery uh, in, in, high, in educational settings, um, so and recovery housing. So there's all these different um, uh, uh, now resources that people, that we as clinicians can connect people to, to, to help them. So I, I, would, I would make clinicians more aware of that um, so that they can help people connect, connect the dots and, and, and uh, maybe shorten that time to stable remission. Well, that's a, that's a, I think a really great point is uh, all the different other resources that people don't even think about. Right. And, and the next question I'm going to ask you, which feels, um, I guess, weird asking you, because if there was ever a person who had an effect on this group, it was you. Um, but what would you say to policymakers out there should by chance they are listening? <laughs> well, um, again, is to uh, think about, you know, making, you know, making treatment more accessible, making it more available, making it um, uh, and, and, and recovery resources more available. Uh, uh, but also to, to think about recovery, to think about not just acute care stabilization, but think again, what do we need to do to provide the building materials for people to get their life back on track and the building permits? So I think this is so key. It's something that we are now, I think at, the time is now for this. Um, and I, I think this, you know, the new administration is, is focusing on this to provide, yes, treatment is important. It can be life-saving and is vital for many people. But we also need to think about beyond this acute stabilization, what do we do then? Yeah. What do we do then? How do we provide the building permits? How do we provide the building materials, the building resources? to instill hope to get people's lives back on track. We've been short-sighted um, in the past, but I, now, I think now the next 50 years um, forwards, I think we'll be focusing much more on how can we 
uh, you know, improve stable remission rates of stable remission and uh, help people to uh, to resolve their problems sooner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, what is your take home message for underserved populations? Well, I think, you know, I think this, um, again, I think it's, we need to serve, we need to serve as a society, those underserved populations better. Hmm. This includes um, sexual minorities. Uh, it, it includes uh, racial, ethnic mi minorities, uh, people with low SES, um, Native Americans in particular, have uh, been really hard hit. By, by addiction, substance use disorder, and particularly during COVID, um, is how how we how we can serve those those populations better, um, and that's something that uh, policy needs to really take a look at in terms of providing disproportionately more to disproportionately unserved uh, populations. Um, so we need more resources in these harder hit uh, communities, both in terms of providing easier access to treatment and recovery support resources, um, and in particular, the, the recovery uh, supports and, and building, helping them build recovery capital. So this means, I think, investment in, in job training, job access, uh, educational training, educational access. There's this very nice program called Access to Recovery in many states, including Massachusetts, we're just doing an evaluation of it right now, uh, which provides building materials. It provides uh, six months of paid training uh, in, hmm. in a variety of different jobs. So they get paid while they train for a new job that can get their foot in the door. It provides um, access to housing for six months, paid housing in addition to that. It provides wow. vouchers for goods and services. Um, and again, this is, this is coming from largely from federal uh, 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 block grant dollars, um, but uh, again, it's about how do we how do we provide them building materials to those people who need it, uh, who really need that to get a foothold back in recovery. Yeah, I think that's such a such a crucial program and often under uh, underappreciated link in the chain. So, John, the last question that we have for you is. You've been so successful in your career. Do you have any advice for the trainees out there who are listening and how they can make an impact like you have? Well, I think firstly is, is find a few words that nobody can understand. And <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. That will monotonically but, increase uh, your footprint. Well, yes. I, I think <laughs> you know, uh, find some words that nobody yeah, haven't got a clue and use them often, uh, but with authority. Uh, and that's the key. Right, key the key. confidence. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what sells it. It's, it's all about. No, but the, um, uh, well, it's very, first of all, it's very kind of you to say that. Um, you know, I've been lucky, as I mentioned, you know, it's it's really, you know, I think it comes from within, doesn't it? A lot of it, you know, is our passion um, for, a, for an area that we find something that really we can latch onto that drives us. That keeps us motivated, keeps us up late at night when we have to do that stuff in grad school that's really difficult. Um, those times when we want to throw in the towel, um, keep us keep us motivated, keep us going, and uh, and that's you know really you know having you know caring mentors. I mean it's hard to you know you know you, 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 we choose our mentors you know 
we're trying to trying to get our mentors um uh you know select mentors but we don't know what they're going to be like will they be caring will they be kind will they be you know generous will they be engaging and warm and 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 surrounding ourselves with people like that to help us along the way um and um yeah i think you know try to emulate the people that's what i've done anyway is to is to look at uh, those individuals that inspire me and try to be like them i think that's pretty human nature really isn't it um we want to kind of emulate the, those that are, are our heroes yeah. and and try and, and try and try and do what they did find you know good work hard you know try and find good training programs and, and good people to latch on to be patient be patient uh, I, i'm terrible at being patient you know <laughs> You know, I say my prayer, my prayer for patience every day is God grant me patience and grant it right now. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm terrible. You know, I'm totally ill-suited for a research field because uh, I, I just want instant gratification. You know, it's like um, I find it very difficult to delay gratification, but maybe that's why I've got my pedal, my foot on the pedal all the time, pushing for quickly for the answers. But but it's not a it's not a quick game. This really it, it's a kind of a bit of a patient. You have to be patient with research. It takes time to gather answers to to, to research these things. Um, so and, and sometimes you're not you're not successful right away. Um, and uh, but be patient, be persistent uh, is key. That paper, I, you know, that paper uh, that you mentioned, that one that one I did on. Um, uh, the terminology, the first paper, the first experimental study, I sent it to seven journals initially, all rejected it. Wow. So, you know, now, maybe they were a bit, you know, um, <laughs> they were, you know, it was a journal of monotonicity and things like that. No, <laughs> I had no chance. No, but the, um, uh, they were, they were high bar journals, but still, you know, seven journals, you know, and then, and then, and then I, I, I sent it to the International Journal of Drug Policy. I thought, huh. There's a great journal for this, International Journal of Drug Policy. And they loved it. You know, they loved right. it. They were all over it and saw it significant. So sometimes it's finding the right market. You know, it's finding the right market for your work. And then and then that 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 particular thing took off, went viral. Um, you know, totally unexpectedly, but such as such as it is. But anyway, but yeah, it's kind of, you know, being being persistent, being patient and and Follow your own true. Here's my my children out there. You know, follow your own true north. You know, your um, don't be put off. You know, if you've got something inside you that says, you know what, I still think this is right, even though people are telling me maybe this ain't right. Um, there's something that pay attention to that and and keep your foot on the gas there because I think, um, as they say in the music industry, you know, don't change, don't change your tune to follow the trend. The trend will come around to you if you're true to yourself. Right. Three chords and the truth. <laughs> the That's world, all you need. <laughs> the world will eventually find you. They'll come around to you. And that was a bit of my story, really. You know, recovery science was not in fashion. That was not in vogue. It is now. It is now. So, you know. Uh, but, you know, it wouldn't matter if it wasn't. The important thing is you've got to do what you feel is right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I love that advice, all of that advice. Um, I'm going to be scouring my dictionary 
uh, over the next couple of days looking for words. Exactly. And I need uh, to learn some chords. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, only three. So just three um, non monotonically. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, John. This has been just oh, yeah. incredible. And, and I've learned so much. Uh, thank you for spending some of your time with us. Agreed. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks. It's great chatting to you both. Thanks a lot. Next time on the Addiction Psychologist Podcast will be the first in a series of episodes on addiction treatment. We're going to cover different forms of treatment, talking to experts in each area. We'll recover brief motivational interviewing, CBT, contingency management, psychopharmacology. We'll have exciting guests, the likes of Jim Murphy and others. So please stay tuned.